This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful you're here today. This is a podcast for parents or anybody helping raise kids. Today, you're listening to episode 21, and I'm talking with Nefertiti Austin. One of my guests in episode 13 of this podcast, Gina Wilder, mentioned Nefertiti's book, Motherhood So White. And so I bought the book and I read it this past fall and knew I had to have her on the podcast. Nefertiti is a writer. She's a mother of two and she is the author of the memoir, Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America. In this episode, we talk about her book and we talk about her experience as a single black mother walking through the adoption process. You can find Nefertiti online. Her website is just nefertitiaustin.com. And I'm so excited, everybody. We have a sponsor for this episode, and that is Prevenex. This is where I personally get all of my vitamins and supplements, protein powder, and kids' vitamins. They have an amazing program. When you purchase a bottle of their children's multivitamin, the Supervites, they then send critical nutrition to children around the world who need it most. So what I do is I make smoothies every single day. I pack them with tons of vegetables and fruits and a scoop of their Nurify Plus protein powder. And I also throw Supervites vitamins into the smoothie. And that is what my kids have for breakfast every single day. And then I don't feel so bad if they don't have another vegetable for the entire day. Uh, You all can save 15% if you want to check it out. Go to Prevenex.com. Use the code Lindsay15 to save. That's Lindsay15 to save 15% off your order. Friends, I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Nefertiti Austin. Well, today on the podcast, I'm so excited to welcome Nefertiti Austin to the show. Welcome to the show, Nefertiti. Thank you so much, Lindsay. How are you doing? What does your day look like? Well, it's great now because I dropped my second grader off. So I have like some physical and emotional space to get some work done. And, um, you know, pretty good. I'm so happy for her that she is able to go to school, you know, hoping my eighth grader gets to go in another month or so. And we're just taking it, you know, one day at a time and, you know, just making lemonade out of lemons. Yeah, so the younger students are back and they're still yes. doing virtual. Um, yeah, our kids went back uh, probably like January 18th is when we went back. So wow. it's such a relief when yeah. they go. You know, it's yeah. so good for them and for us. Mm-hmm. It makes a huge difference. Everyone, we, we get along better. Yeah. And I'm probably going to need a couple of weeks before I really feel like, oh, I miss her. But right now I'm like, no, goodbye. <laughs> I know. See you later. And when they first went back, it was like everybody was out of the house and I thought, okay, what do I do? What's the first thing I do right in this moment? And I just, it took me a few days to kind of get used to that. You know, you feel like the second you have everybody gone, you're like, I need to get everything done. I need to accomplish so many things. Yes. Got to ease back into it though. 
Yes, that was me last week. I just ran crazy errands and I was able to be gone for hours because I didn't have to worry about, okay, she, okay, she should be get okay, well, she needs to log back in. Okay, well, is my son going to help? Yeah. So all of that was just lifted off of me. Oh, for sure. It's been crazy. Um, well, let's dive right in. You are the mother of two, a professor and the author of Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America. I read your book in November. It was really oh, good. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I'm sure that was crazy, though. Uh, it came out in 2019, and then mm-hmm. we kind of had a uh, awakening in our country in 2020. So did you see a resurgence in book yes. purchases? Yeah, book everything. Yes. Um, you know, it was tragic on the one hand that it took the deaths, the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and George Floyd just to get, I mean, not just black motherhood on the table, but, you know, so many issues that are, that happen for us every single day to have regular dialogue about systemic racism and to be able to talk about it. So I really was, um, I guess, humbled by the support and a lot of people reaching out who never, I never would have been on their radar who reached out and said, oh, this is something I don't know about. Like, you know, the fact, the fact that um, parents of color, especially parents of black children, we, we parent a little differently. I mean, there's so many universalities, but there's a lot of things that we do differently to avoid our kids getting killed at 12 in the park playing with water guns. So, yeah, it was just it was a very surreal experience. Yeah, you're probably thinking someone like me, would I have reached out to you in 2019 to come on this podcast? Right. Right. Yeah. I noticed um, a lot of podcast invitations that came in when I scrolled through galleries, like often I was their first black guest and, mm. um, you know, which was interesting. So hopefully it won't be a situation where, I mean, I felt like there was kind of a lull. People kind of felt uh, ally fatigue, yeah. kind of felt like, oh, I said, I'm sorry, I'm over it. And, and you know, for us, it, 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 can, it keeps going it's still every day. So thank you for not being one of those people who's like, oh, I'm over it and I'm, I'm on to the next. So, yeah, I think it's one of those things where we just have to, we have to continue to educate ourselves. It wasn't like, this is something that happened in the summer of 2020 and now we're moving on with life. This is everyday life for a big portion of our country. Absolutely. I want to dive into why you decided to write a book. I know you've written a couple books before this book, but when did you decide I want to write this memoir and get my story out to the world? It didn't start off like that. I really just started out kind of ranting and complaining about racism within publishing and adoption because so much of adoption is geared toward supporting white parents who adopt black children or children of color. And so when I was ready to become a mom and, you know, very clear, I wanted to adopt first. And then I started looking because I'm a reader like, oh, you know, where can I find a story about a single black woman who chooses to adopt, you know, no fertility issues, you know, no drama about a man, nothing like that. So I'm looking for myself on the page and I couldn't find myself on the page, which was weird because it was the height of the mommy wars. And there were all of these iterations of mom, you know, there was the slacker mom and tiger mom and, you know, all the different mothers and and I recognize that there's diversity within white motherhood, but the prevailing feeling, you know, 13, 14 years ago and now is motherhood is still 
viewed from a very white lens. And so my early writing was really talking about that. And it wasn't, I was a couple of years in before I thought, oh, I've got a collection of essays. And that's what I thought, that I would be looking at different aspects of adoption, like um, the fact that I changed my kids' names or uh, public adoption versus private adoption versus international. And my, I was working with an agent, didn't go over so well. She was young and not ready and wanting me to kind of steer away from the racial component. And I, I couldn't get her to understand that as a black woman, that's my intersection like every single day. And so, um, and then later I got another agent, but I continued to write and it just took time to sort of refine it. And then eventually my new agent, whom I adore, Kate McKean, she was the one who said, uh, you know, you don't, it's more than just essays. This, this is actually your story. And when she sold the book to Sourcebooks, my editor there, uh, Anna said, let's take a more narrative approach. And before we get into all of these very, you know, highbrow academic things, intersectionality, hypermasculinity, those things, people will need to be able to relate to you. And so that's how that came about. Because if it were up to me, I never would have put my business in the street. Never. <laughs> Was that uncomfortable to do? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um and she, she was great, though. She was like, I know you're a private person, but we really are going to need your story. So I just had to take a breath. And I felt like, gosh, I'd come so far. And to be told for years by agents, like, you know, this is important. You're a strong writer, but your experience is marginal, i.e. it won't sell. No one's going to be interested. I was like, okay, here's my moment. Mm. And I need to take it. And so I did like a, a whole nother draft where it just, all of warts and all. And thankfully she's like, you don't have to tell everything. I was like, (laughs) so we, there's a whole lot of stuff that didn't make it in the book. So yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you mentioned like the mommy wars, the tiger mom and, Mm -hmm. and the slacker mom, what kind of mom would you say you are? Right there in the middle, like half Western, half tiger, um, half, slacker I think especially in this last year with the kids being home and my son is an eighth grader and applying to high school I was far more tiger mom Mm. this year um than previous years probably um I I, I'm probably I think my baseline is tiger mom just because I was raised by conservative middle-class black people and so we were taught you you know you there's no slacking like you got to work hard (laughs) you got to do your best and so my children's school has a very different philosophy, failure is king, uh, social emotional learning curriculum. So that was a learning curve for me to learn all of these different things and just sort of putting it all together. So, you know, I would say I'm still half Western mom, half tiger mom, and certainly slacker mom from time to time. I love that you brought up with your son applying to high schools that you kind of went into tiger mom mode because I think it's important to understand that like we don't always have to fit into a box and be like, I'm this kind of mom or this kind of mom. And, you know, when our kids are really little, like we might not know how we're going to be when we're dealing with the teenage stuff or even, um, you know, like my kid, my oldest is eight. So I'm just learning this new elementary stuff. So we change and we grow and that's a good thing, right? Oh, absolutely. And you had to be flexible and open um, as a parent because the kids throw stuff at you all the time and every day is a different day and, you know, they master one thing or as a parent, you feel really good. Okay, I mastered their schedule. I got this down and then 
they throw you a curve, you know, something happens. So, or life throws a curve. So, yeah. Because I think we get stuck on like, I said, I was never going to do this as a mom, or I said, right. I was never going to do that. And it's like, well, you can reconsider what you said you were going to do because you weren't there yet. Absolutely. And I find myself often laughing at myself. I'm like, well, I have turned into <laughs> my grandfather. This is hysterical. <laughs> um, let's talk about your grandparents a little bit. I know your grandparents raised you and um, I'm just curious how that has affected the kind of parent you are and how the way they raised you filters into the way you raise your kids. Well, I have to laugh at my, at my big two laughs are the heat's on right now. I mean, it is cold. We live in LA. I mean, I realize polar vortex over the East coast. I get it. But so that's my first laugh is that I'm always like, are you cold? Are you guys a little cold? <laughs> so the heat's on. And the other thing is I, when we were kids, my grandfather would not season his food. He'd just throw anything in the pot because he ate for nourishment. I still eat for flavor, but I'm also finding, I just throw anything and the kids are like, really? Like that's <laughs> gross. What are you? And I'm like, well, it's all going to the same place. <laughs> like what difference does it make? So, um, certainly that. And I mean, it had a huge influence on me. I, obviously the biggest one I think my unconscious takeaway is that um, you can parent children you didn't give birth to. I mean, I obviously was biologically connected because those are my mom's parents, but they did not give birth to me and I still felt like their daughter. And so it wasn't until I was writing my memoir that I really made all of those connections and I feel like I was kind of primed to adopt just out the gate and definitely didn't know it. And so my sense of taking care of children, uh, not just my kids, my nieces, I've got a freshman, a niece who's a freshman, and then her sister is in the 10th grade, and they spend a lot of time with us. And so it goes in waves. I mean, she started driving, so she, you know, came over more. And so I'm finding like my one of my friends jokes, she's like, you have four kids. And so I'm like, yeah, because I can see my investment, uh, emotional investment. It's always been there, but it's a little more now because they're getting older and, you know, one's off to college and the other will be going to college. And so I find myself in more of an, more than just an aunt role, just, mm. but, you know, so it's sort of auntie mommy role, sort of like just in terms of, you know, just kind of checking in with them and see where their head is and if they're getting their news from TikTok, which they do. And, <laughs> you know, like... Can you not? So, oh, TikTok. Um, yeah. yeah, well, and you talk about that in your book a little bit black culture and yeah. black adoption, how that's different yeah. from, you know, going through the foster care system or doing a mm -hmm. private adoption. Do you feel like, like, did you know at a young age that you wanted to adopt? You know, you don't know if you're going to get married or if you're going to have a partner right. and all those things. Did you know young that you, whether or not you got married, if you'd want to do that? No, I thought I would get married and have, I wanted three or four kids. And it wasn't until my mid twenties when my friends started getting married that I realized like, oh, I'm not, <laughs> I am not sure enough for that right now that I figured out, uh, probably mid twenties, but I, I mean, I'd still love to get married. I don't need any more children, but <laughs> I, you know, my plan was I was going to be a lawyer and a writer and get married and have a family. And it wasn't really until my mid thirties where, you know, I had gone to law school. I had, 
you know, I had books published. I had, you know, kind of checked a bunch of boxes already. And while I was still wanting to be married and thought about beautiful wedding dresses I had ripped out of catalogs and stuff, I really wanted to be a mother and I really wanted to adopt. So I don't think, I just think it was kind of background for me. I don't know that it was a conscious decision until I hit mid thirties when I was like, Oh, okay, it's time. And the way that I want to do this is through adoption. Mm, And you went through the foster care system. I did. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that experience. And um, well, let's just start there. What did the, what did it look like starting there? So I had help. I had support my uh, best friends and adoption social worker. So I kind of had an insider track on what to expect, how it, how it worked, I guess, theoretically. And so I went and I went to an orientation. And then after an orientation, I signed up for PS map training. I don't know that they still call it that anymore. But in any event, it was six weeks of like parent training and really a a wonderful introduction to who the kids are in foster care, how they got there. It's typically through um, abuse or neglect. Um, the, The biggest one is neglect. And, you know, it's not that people said, oh, I don't want these kids and I'm just going to throw them away. That that's, you know, that's not the issue. And that was good information. And I think my biggest takeaway in those six weeks, which really stayed with me, was to have empathy and compassion for the birth parents, because I did not have a close relationship with my mother And, you know, largely I felt very abandoned. She, we went to live with my grandparents and then a couple years later she moved out of state and then we saw her throughout the year, but I felt like, okay, you chose your lifestyle over your kids. And so when I was taking those classes, I kind of went in with that mindset and really like, you know, who, you know, who just leaves their kids? Like, you know, who does that? But once I got a little more information for the reasons why I was able to understand that if someone can do better, you know, they would do better, you know. And so that was helpful. And then after I finished the classes and um, at some point you get to choose what you what you want. So I wanted a little boy. I wanted him to be at least half black. And I was open to if there was a family background of depression or, um, you know, even drug abuse, because I, I knew that the environment really made a huge difference for those kids who may have been drug exposed. And I, you know, sort of I went to it knowing that, OK, there are the whole crack baby thing. And that's a whole nother conversation was a myth. So I wasn't scared about that. And I was. um you know, got myself ready and, and then waited for a placement. Yeah. I've always wondered, does it feel, what does it feel like when you're kind of filling out that paperwork, d- deciding like, who am I willing to foster? Because I oftentimes feel like, cause I, I have a heart for fostering. I, I think I want to do it uh-huh. if I can convince my husband to. Um, uh-huh. And I always wonder like, what would that feel like to say, Oh, I don't think I could take this child because of X, Y, and Z or whatever. Does it feel uncomfortable? Sure. Yeah. The first child I was matched with was nine months old and he had some delays. So he couldn't sit up on his own and he couldn't hold his own bottle. And I, I felt really bad for him, but I did not want to re-injure him. And so I said no, because I really wanted to be honest about what I 
thought I could do at that time. I mean, as a brand new parent, as a single parent, I just wasn't certain that I was up for that. And so I said no. So yeah, it feels weird because it's like you go into wanting to become a parent or an adoptive parent because you want to help. You want to help a homeless child or child in need, you know, however they got in the system. You want to take them out and serve them and and give them a good life. So it, it didn't feel good to say no because, it, you know, it felt hypocritical to say no. But by the same token, you know, within the classes, I think they do a great job of really like telling you to check in with yourself, check in with what your support system like. And if you think you can't do it, then don't do it. So um, I, I was able to comfortably just say, you know, I'm going to have to pass. And tell us about when you met your son for the first time. So I met him. Actually, he was, I, I feel like my birthday present. And uh, I got a call about him. And I, I used to go to Palm Springs every year for my birthday. And that year, I told my friends, you know, I don't think I don't think we should go because, you know, I'm feeling like I'm going to get a call. So we don't go. And I do get a call. And so when I met him, it's funny. I remember my social worker asking, she's like, well, wasn't it love at first sight? And I said, no, it wasn't love at first sight. But I knew he was my son. Mm -hmm. And I felt like if she calls me back and tells me I cannot have this baby, I'm going to fight her because <laughs> this is my child. So we, I felt a connection with him and I felt like, I don't know, it just, it felt right. Like when you're dealing with an infant, it's not like you're dating where you can ask certain questions. And so <laughs> it's just, you know, do you like walks on the beach? You know, do you like red wine? You know, it's, it's, it's not that cause they can't talk. So it's really just more of a feeling. And I felt like, okay, this, this, he's the one. And he felt that too, because if we didn't have a connection, it definitely would not it wouldn't have worked. So, Can you talk a little bit about your family and friends and any pushback you might have received, like a single mom raising a black boy? Like, what were your friends saying about that? Well, most of them were very supportive. And then I had some who laughed and they were like, you? And I was like, yeah, well, why not? What's wrong with me? And, and it was because of such a free spirit and just seemingly, you know, just not, not flaky because I've never been a flaky person However, I take full or at least to take full advantage of the fact that I didn't have anyone to take care of except myself and my dog. So I could travel when I felt like it. I could make a whole bunch of moves that I can't do anymore. <laughs> so um, and then the pushback, absolutely. The pushback was, you know, you're not married and you're not a homeowner. And how are you going to raise a black boy in America? And you can't raise a boy. You can't raise a boy. It was a lot of that, which was ridiculous because there's so many single parents in the country. And I felt like, well, the alternative is he stays in foster care. Like, yeah. um, that's not a win. That's not a win for anyone. And the other pushback was just over this, the whole mythical crack baby, you know, you're gonna get a child who's going to have problems, he's going to have delays, and he's going to be bad. And he's going to have all of these issues in school, and you're not going to be able to deal with that. And you know, again, thankfully, I had information and I knew that the crack baby thing was a myth. So I was able to shrug that off. But it was hurtful to hear the comments that people made. And it was really just out of their own fear and their own ignorance. And, um, you know, which is largely why we still have so many kids in foster care, because people feel that the kids in foster care is somehow, 
you know, like discount kids mm. as opposed to whole human beings who just need a chance. You know, they just need a love and a, and a stable home. Hey, everybody, a quick break here to share with you a little bit about Indie Maven. I know we have listeners all over the country and world, but this is an Indianapolis specific business that I am super excited about. Do you wish you could be as knowledgeable about what's happening in Indianapolis as you were before things got busy with your career, kids, family, and friends? Are you looking to get more engaged and active in your city through the best recommendations ever? Indie Maven is a community that connects women in Indianapolis and its surrounding neighborhoods through captivating and rich storytelling, crazy fun events, and best of all, an audience of highly engaged, badass women. To learn more about Indie's happenings, the trailblazing women making it all happen, and to start making a difference in your community, join the Maven movement. Go to IndieMaven.com to sign up for their free newsletter, learn about upcoming events, and join their membership program for perks valued at thousands of dollars from local businesses. I am part of Indie Maven. I am a member and I so love watching what these women have created for our city here in Indianapolis. Go check it out, IndieMaven.com. All right, friends, enjoy the rest of my conversation with Nefertiti Austin. It seems like you have a really strong community of friends and, um, you know, what's one thing you do to make sure that your son and your daughter do have male role models in their lives? With my son, it was sports. That was mm. uh, like really, honestly, let me say that's not true. From the moment I got him, a really good friend of mine said, I am his godfather. And then where I worked at the time, I worked around a bunch of men and they all just sort of stepped up and they were very, very supportive. So I never had any trouble finding a male community because I've got a bunch of guy friends. So I always had that. And then once he started kinder and started playing uh, little league baseball and all the coaches are the dads. And so once again, we were surrounded by black men who took all of the kids in and, you know, certainly took a special liking. My son is a likable kid, a very low key uh, kid anyway. So, uh, you know, took a special interest in him, which I really, really appreciated. And, you know, would say, oh, he's my son, too. So we didn't have any issues there. And then when my daughter came, I mean, my son pretty much had called her in. And this this same group of men, they were like, okay, that's my daughter, because we were surrounded by boys, like everybody had boys, there were no girls. So when my daughter showed up, you know, she was the bell for everyone. And it's funny, because my girlfriends would say, oh, it's a good thing we girl, because she would just run all over her dad and, you know, just anything, anything my daughter wanted then and now I, I can get on the phone or text and I got men running. <laughs> just, just, what does what she need? You know, so so that's been pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds like you really lean into that, too, like letting people step up. And I imagine is that difficult sometimes like you are the mom, you are running this house, but mm-hmm. it's probably it feels important to let other people come in and be helpers. It does now. It did not come easily. And I've just, uh, I'm a very independent person. And because I adopted and my family was still giving me side eye, I kind of felt like, like in the first couple of years, I had to be everything. I had to do everything. I didn't ask for help. And my friends would offer, 
like my cousin and I adopted at the same time. So she would say, oh, yeah, I took a nap while my friend came over and they watched, you know, her son. And that never even occurred to me. I mean, I knew that like you nap when they nap. But I was like, OK, I can do the laundry. I can clean the kitchen. I can pick these toys up off the floor. And when my friends came over, I would let them help. But that wasn't my inclination. And so I really had to grow into allowing people to help. And my one of my really good friends, she would tease me and she would say, um, oh, yeah, Neff doesn't trust us. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> and it wasn't that. It was just, you know, I don't know. I was really locked into this idea that, okay, this was my idea and I needed to show that I had made the right decision. And if I, you know, if I showed any weakness, that meant that I hadn't done the right thing. So that was my own ego. That was, I got over it though. And, and definitely by the time my daughter came, we would get to the baseball field. One of my, um, friend's husbands was there. So the moment we would get there, I would just hand her to him and she would just, <laughs> Stay with him the duration of the game. So I got over it. I was like, oh, this is killing me. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> I love that he would just take her. Yes. I want to I read. Um, I watched your YouTube video this morning uh, for Black History uh, Month. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And um, that this is a video where you discuss the impact that the Black Power movement had on your life, your work, and your writing. And you mentioned that your parents were part of the Black Power Revolutionary Movement. And in the video, mm-hmm. you mentioned um, you are now carrying the torch on and hope to take it across the finish line at some point. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you now? I'm um, looking back at your childhood and um, like, what does that finish line look like now? I don't know uh, what it looks like. It's funny. My, as I mentioned, my niece was over and I grabbed a photo album and it was a picture she had never seen because my dad passed when I was 21. And so she never met him, obviously. And looking at these pictures from when I was in high school, I found a letter I had written to our editor. And I was basically complaining because someone, I guess, in my high school had written something and they used the word Negro. And so in my letter to the editor, I'm like, it's 1987. How could someone do this, this, that, and the other? And I laughed because I said, wow, I'm the same person. And I'm still writing about the same things. And I would have, you know, 16, 17 would have never thought, you know, fast forward a whole bunch of years that I would still be on the same theme. And for, for my parents, it was different. Like during the the spring and summer with all the protest and, you know, there were people who felt a need to go out into the street to protest. I don't feel a need to go out into the street. So my form of protest, my form of really keeping the conversation going really is the pin. And so that's, that's how I do it. And, you know, maybe the finish line means, you know, black people get reparations, you know, maybe, maybe that's what it is, you know, maybe it is, um, more black mother writers or black parent writers get their books published and we get on the New York Times bestsellers list talking about black motherhood because that hasn't happened. Um, you know, so perhaps it's, it's that the profile is raised to the same level as when we're looking at like um, those movies, you know, bad moms, you know, I can, think of times with my friends and I, we've been bad moms. And so, but there hasn't been, you know, the buddy, black buddy mom movies out, you know, that kind of thing. So 
I'm not sure what the finish line is, but it doesn't just have to be or look one way. It could be, you know, multiple iterations. So, so we'll see. I don't know. What do you think your parents would think of, of the book and, and your life now? I think they would be um, proud. I really took great care to not disparage either one of them. And like I said, there's a whole lot of stuff that did not make it in the book. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe at a later date, I'll write about some of those things. But I think they would feel good about it. I think they would see their legacy, their contribution to the Black Power Movement in in my work. And that um, I, I imagine... It may have even been a surprise to them. I mean, my thesis was on black women in the Black Panther Party, so I don't know why anybody would be surprised. But, <laughs> but that was a long time ago. So, I, you know, I think they'd be proud and then also maybe a little surprised that I've gone back to that because I could have had a career as a romance writer and not, not dealt with race at all. So, um, What's your message to a single black woman who wants to adopt? I think she should go for it. It's funny. I talked to a, a friend of a friend. She texts me. She goes, I've got a girlfriend who really wants to adopt and she needs help. She needs, you know, support. And in listening to her, she was in the same exact place I was 14 years ago. She's like, I don't, I've, I've, I've gone to going public. I've gone through all the steps, but like, I don't know what else to do, or where else to go. So it felt good to be able to direct her to um, the Fab Moms on IG and yes, we adopt and a few agencies that she'd never heard of and to be able to say, you know, they're not a whole bunch, but there are resources for black women who want to adopt. And the advice I'd give her is the same advice I'd give anyone who wants to adopt. And that is, you know, check your household. Are you ready? You know, emo and it's not just financially, it's like, like emotionally. Are you ready to not have any personal space? <laughs> Are you ready to go use the bathroom and someone is talking to you while you are trying to <laughs> use the bathroom? And are you ready to have um, social workers? You know, the first couple of years you've got so social workers in and out and you, you have to do a lot of birth family visits and really be an open book. And then that window closes and then it's just you. That's like when the real work begins. So if you're ready to do the work, and you feel that this is a good time in your life, it has to be your decision. It's not your church's decision or your mama's decision. It's, it's, that's your life and your choice. What was your hardest transition? I always say my hardest transition to motherhood was zero to one child. Mm -hmm. um, just because, like you were saying, like you're, you're, you go from doing everything for yourself. I mean, right. you're doing everything. You can do everything on your own time to everything revolves around this human yes. little human schedule what was your hardest transition uh probably one to two kids because the second child everything just increased exponentially it wasn't just double the food or double the clothing it was exponential in my exhaustion and really and, and my kids have a six-year age gap so which is good and bad and so managing their schedules and their interactions and their needs and all of that, that, that is insane. I mean, I don't recommend single motherhood. It's hard. It is definitely hard. I mean, so it is what it is and I'm fine with it. I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I, you know, wouldn't do anything differently, but it's rough. It's definitely hard. So I would say that second child, that's, um, that was an exponential um, experience all the way around. 
continues to be. Yeah, I always remember before I had kids, I always remember Oprah saying being a mom is the hardest job in the world. And I'm like, I I think an asterisk needs to be made. Being a single mom is the hardest job in the world. Yes, yes. And even uh, people who are dealing with uh, ex-husbands or ex-partners and they're not on the same page with parenting, like, ooh, gracious, that's a nightmare. So I I don't have that to worry about at least, so... So earlier you mentioned, you know, raising a son in a country where we systemic racism is a very obvious thing that happens in our country every single day. And I listened to you on the Dear White Women podcast and you guys, yeah, yeah, you guys were talking about um, what parents of white children can do to come alongside the parents of black children. And I I think specifically you were talking Mm -hmm. about black boys, right? Um, Mm -hmm. so we Mm -hmm. can, can we discuss that a little bit beyond the, I feel guilty or whatever, you know, that whole conversation, what are some things we can do to walk alongside you and be supportive? Well, thank you for that. Uh, definitely lots of things. So, you know, in the books that your kids read, you know, learn about some of, um, some black heroes and, and read stories that are written by black people that feature black children, because that's another window into, Um, different experiences that um, black children have and maybe how they feel about uh, being in, you know, like a private school and not having a lot of of diversity in a school. And also, you know, play dates are huge. I mean, not now, of course, because of COVID, but pre-COVID. And then at some point it's going to go away. Play dates are huge. So I'm, I have found that parents, white parents, are very generous with, hey, come on over, or, you know, I can grab them after school, and they can hang out this, that, and the other, and often it isn't necessarily reciprocated. Okay, well, then let me, let me pick up, and and your child, you know, Connor, come to my, you know, that sort of thing, and so be open to your child going to a neighborhood that is outside of your comfort zone, and Um, and then when our kids are with you and I'd say the same thing over and over, but, you know, teach your child to protect my child. So for instance, if your child takes a shortcut through the neighbor's yard, the day my child is with your child, you know, you instruct your child, you can't do that when August is with you because while the neighbor knows you, if it's not the neighbor, someone else may think the wrong thing, the police get called, you know, August will be the one who gets in trouble. He will be the one who gets questioned or detained, not you. And so your job is to protect your friend. And that is one way to protect your friend. At school, for instance, you know, this is so such a regular thing for black kids. If all the kids are doing the same thing, I swear to God, 99% of the time, the child who gets in trouble is the black child, even when they're doing the same exact thing. And so as kids, you know, we don't teach our kids to talk back to adults, but your child can say to you, hey, mom, this happened at school and it wasn't his fault. And then as the parent, you know, you either reach out to the black parent or reach out to the teacher and say the kids were all doing the same thing. And, you know, Billy said it was actually his fault or he noticed that August got a more severe punishment than the rest of us did. And that's not fair. So as white parents, you can speak up, you can be an advocate for the children of color who attend, you know, school or, you know, on the, on the side 
people across team, whatever the case may be, and and speak out when you recognize um, unequal um, consequences for similar actions. And I think also to really encourage your kids, if they have questions, just to, you know, talk to their friend and, and check in. Like, how are you doing? Are you okay? Uh, um, during the spring and summer with all the uprising, so many of my white friends called and they emailed and they were like, how are you doing? This is horrible. This is terrible. Are you okay? And, you know, I didn't need them to do anything, but I appreciated that they acknowledged that, wow, I didn't know, or this is terrible, and, you know, I'm sorry. So, and they didn't have to do that, but that went a long way. So I I hope those are useful. I think it's really useful, and I think that a lot of people don't realize that in the classroom, you know, and they wouldn't think to say, you know, if your son comes home and says, there was an issue in the classroom. They don't think to ask who were all the parties involved. What did mm-hmm. it look like? What did the teacher? Who did the teacher um, talk to first? And all that. You just you don't yes. think about that. So I think to be actively considering, you know, who else was involved is super important. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, definitely. Because as a black parent, I do. I always ask. I'm not so much now. He's older, but when he was younger, I always ask. Okay, well, who who were you playing with? And then who did the teacher speak to? Because I have received an email and then I'm on the phone calling my white friends. Did you get an email today? Or if I see them in passing, hey, did the teacher say anything to you about such and such? And they're like, oh, no, I didn't know. That's a huge problem. And there's a lot of unconscious bias that occurs. And the teacher isn't always aware of his or her bias. And so it needs to be brought to their attention, not only from, you know, the black parents, but from the white parents to say, we recognize this is happening or we notice this is happening and we're bringing it to your attention as well. So. You know, when you wrote Motherhood So White, part of that was that you couldn't find any resources. Do you, do you think right. that this book will, or do you hope, that it will spring about more resources? Well, I hope so. Uh, you know, again, it's getting the word out that the resource is even there. So, in fact, the person I spoke with the other day, she was like, well, tell me your story. And I said, well, I actually have a whole entire book that I wrote about my story, so you know, here's the name of it. I'll tell you some stuff, but I'm not going to sit here for 300, you know. And so and she's a well-educated, you know, professional woman, professional black woman, and she never heard about it. She didn't even know. So it again, it is um, being able to raise the profile for it. And I did get like a lot of support and comments from single black women who were on the fence who said, oh, I read your book. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to go for it now. So that was really exciting. I was happy that uh, I was able to encourage people and even um, white people who reached out and who said, oh, you know, thank you, because at least I know now I need to educate myself on my kids if I decide to adopt or foster non-white children and how to use my privilege as a white person in this country to support and protect my um, black child as well. So I, I, I hope so. I mean, there's so many kids who are still in foster care and who need homes. And it would be wonderful if we could all just kind of, you know, each one teach one, each one grab one, you know, that would be cool. So we'll I'm get you on the phone with my husband and have you convince, <laughs> yeah. convince him. Um, yeah, because there's a lot yeah. of information on the transracial adoption, white people adopting yes. children. Yes, yes, which is fine, except there are things that black parents have just lived experience or black people have just lived experience that white people don't have, you know, despite best intentions. And so 
it's important to make black friends. There's just no way around it. And to not take offense when we comment on a child's hair because hair is very important in our community. And that's an easy fix. There's YouTube, you can go to, you go to the black neighborhood, you're gonna find a barbershop, a beauty supply store, a beauty shop, like, you know, there's plenty of them. And lotion is an issue. And imaging, being able to see yourself on the screen and even like dolls. My daughter is such a girly girl. Oh my God, she's glitter. She's like all of it. And when we go to Target, sometimes we find, you know, there might be one or two black dolls that are there, but the majority of them are white. And she knows I will not buy a doll like her. And it's not that I think that there's something wrong with white dolls, but what message am I sending her if you know, we choose the best of what they have to offer and the best of what they have to offer is blonde, blue eyed or, you know, a, a girl who doesn't look like her. You know, what message am I sending my daughter? So that's another way that white parents can really support us is, you know, that seems to go in waves. But really being on top of images uh, that our kids watch television movies um toys you know all of that um okay so of all the things that could come out of your book like what is your what what do you want people to most take away what is like the most important message hmm okay let's see uh i think the most important message is that there are all kind of ways to make a family and i would love for I think adoption by black people and the ways in which we create a family to be more mainstream, to be more accepted and that, you know, just because we tend to adopt internally and we tend to adopt family members or take family, you know, we skip the formal process. Like it doesn't mean that we don't adopt. Like that's a huge myth that, that, that persists. It's just, we do it differently and that's okay. And that there are nuances within black parenting and it doesn't make it marginal. It doesn't make it less effective. It doesn't make it like lowbrow. It's just, it's different and it's necessary because we're dealing with a different set of circumstances with our children. And, um, you know, we just want to love each other and keep each other safe and, and accept that they're all kind of moms, all kind of parents, and, you know, again, all kind of ways to make a family. Yeah, and you're talking about this, like, non-formal adoption, kind of like how your your childhood, right. you grew up. Would it have mattered mm-hmm. to you if your grandparents would have formally adopted you? No, I, it wouldn't have made a difference. There was no need. I mean, my, my parents were around. We saw them, so uh, there was no need, which is, I think, just sort of the attitude of black people. It's, okay, well, come on, you know, we just we just keep it moving because it it didn't change. I still had to go to school. <laughs> I still had to, I still had piano practice, you know, practice. So it didn't change, um, anything. So, um, all right. Nefertiti, what is one thing professionally or personally that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? Okay. Hmm. Okay. If I could give two things. Okay. I would love to see my book hit New York times bestsellers list. Like that Let's would be super I would love for that to happen. And uh, let's see, what else? I would love to, and I'm in the process of doing this, um, pivoting a little bit into TV or film. I have a couple of stories that are, 
I think would make great like TV movies, just showing another slice of um, black life and, and black women. So just continue to have an opportunity to sort of to amplify just how complicated and fun and zany and serious, you know, we are just on a regular basis just to show all of our dimensions on screen. So, so. How do you do that? Like, who do you pitch that to? Well, I've met with a couple of agents and I've got a writing partner. So we are um, just pitching, you know, it's, it's just like the publishing process. You just throw a lot of stuff at the wall and it's just, it just takes one person. So, so we'll see, we've got some stuff in the works and, um, in as much as I've already spilled all of my guts in my book, if someone optioned it and wanted to turn it into a movie, I'd probably sit in the theater like with my eyes like this. But I'd be oh, up man, for it. It would be so, so good. <laughs> I'm like picturing, you know, just like the images of you with your grandparents and, and then there would be like um, pictures of your parents and what, you know, part of their lives. And I that would be really good. That would be a great movie. Yeah, that would be cool. I've come around to that. So I've I've had to kind of get there. So I'm there. That would be cool. So oh, we'll yeah, really cool. Um, and, and one note there, just the power of like, not letting the nose stop you, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't. I mean, as a writer, regardless of genre, you expect the nose, you get way more nose than you get yeses, that's for sure. And, um, and it just comes with the territory. And sometimes it means that it's just a, not the right fit. And then sometimes it means that, oh, your work, you know, it's almost there and you just need to keep working at it. And I, I think that's the case for all artists, you know, whatever your milieu is, you just expect a no, but you keep going, you, you know, if you feel good about it and you look for your team, you know, having the right team is crucial. And Sometimes, again, things shift and being flexible, you have to kind of like, oh, gosh, I thought this was going to work. It didn't work. So let me try something else. I am all for this movie. I'm all for it. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm, I'm a big fan of like reading the book first, right? Because you get to p- yeah. put all the pictures together in your head. Um, so then you would feel like watching the movie. You're like, oh, I know, you know, you kind of feel like, you know, the characters. I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> Um, what is the best, most recent book you've read? Wow. Um, I don't get to read as many books as I used to. And I know I've read something recently. I couldn't tell you. I don't even know. Um, trying to think. I don't know. I have to come back to that question. I, I, um, that's a shame. I read the news a lot. So I'm always reading something, but I haven't read a book, I think in a couple of months. Well, what's your favorite? What's like a classic? Like, what's like one of the ones where you're like, okay, if I could go back, this is the one. Hmm. Um, probably The Alchemist um, mm-hmm. by Paulo Coelho, um, because I've read that book like over and over, and largely because I still feel like I'm finding myself. And you know, sometimes we go and search, we go outside of ourselves when we have the answers inside of us. So that's always a great reminder of if, if I can be still long enough, then generally I'll get whatever I need or I'll get a signpost like, you know, go this way and, and it's okay. So that's definitely one that I refer to quite a bit. I read that book when I was probably 24. Mm-hmm. I think I need to revisit it because yeah. I think it'll mean a lot 
it'll be different now as a mom and just, yes. you know, like 15 years older, it's going to mean something different. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then there's another, I don't think of this, it is a book, but I'm, I was thinking fiction. Um, I think it's called the wisdom of Florence Scovel Shin. So on that same sort of quarter and those chapters are super short, they're only like eight pages, but you know, just sort of same the, the same idea of, you know, your thoughts have power and what you put out into the world, you know, will definitely come back to you. So I'm always thinking about that, especially with the kids trying to model, like when my daughter does something to her brother or he does something to her, he's antagonizing her. And I'm like, okay, you know, karma's coming for you. You're going to get it. <laughs> so, And really trying to model, you know, treat people how you want to be treated and, and to not have attachment to stuff so that you can continue forward and, and, and be flexible. Um, so that, you know, no matter what happens, you're going to be okay. I, my kids, they antagonize each other. I mean, it is just constant. Yes. Drives you crazy. Yes. Yes. It's a whole lot of love going on. Yes. Um, (laughs) do you have a favorite kid's book that you read to your, to your kids when they were younger? Or, I mean, I guess your daughter's still six. Yeah. Uh, she's eight now. Yes. Uh, A a fan favorite in the house, uh, called a mother for choco and i think it's by keiko i can't think of uh the first name well keiko i think it's the first i can't think of the last name but i love 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 that story and um it's it's an adoption story basically and there's an animal who is looking for his mother and he meets i think it's the hippopotamus who ultimately tells him i'll be your mom if you let me and so he is um asking um different animals you know he's looking at them like well you know your your coloring is different or you have feathers and you know i have feathers but you don't and all this and so at the end of the story it's really beautiful that the animal is able to say to him you know i'm none of these things but i will be your mother you know if that's okay with you so i i love that story i love that story too i'm going to order that yes. every episode of this podcast I'm like, I have to order the, the book. The kid's book <laughs> recommendation is always so good. Yes. Um, and then what? what's your last message that you want to leave with our audience today? Hmm. Well, I think my last message uh, would be just to be kind to each other. I know we've got this vaccine rollout that's having some issues in certain areas. So I think if we can continue to support each other by wearing our masks, and uh, being kind to each other. I think kindness goes a long way. And also just, you know, it's it's February, it's Black History Month, and I know there's so much content, it's wonderful about um, black people in history and currently, and, you know, so proud of Kamala Harris, who is, you know, my sorority sister. So that's, you know, a lot of pride there. Uh, also black Oh, women. that's so cool. <laughs> and so, um, but just that it, it goes beyond this moment, like, you know, next month and in June or in August that people don't forget that we are still here and that we're still talking about race. We're still feeling the effects of systemic racism and, you know, and, and for people to be mindful and seek ways just to support so that we can feel safe with our kids out in the street and write a book about black motherhood and not feel like we have to make a case for why this is important. And um, just so everybody knows, I'm holding the book right here. Motherhood So White. Um, I think I actually bought this. Uh, I had a guest on my podcast, Gina Wilder. Okay. 
She she was probably episode 10, and she is the one who suggested this book. Oh, that's sweet of her. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Nefertiti just mentioned Kamala Harris. And if for nothing else, uh, buy the book and read the letter that <laughs> she wrote to her son um, about having the first black president of the United States and, like, the significance of that. Because that letter is beautiful, and I would say it's one of my favorite parts of the book. Oh, thank you very much. Well, it's so fun to have, you know, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris and really I told my son, I was like, wow. So for you, your formative years, it was President Obama. And, and for my daughter, I'm like, and for you as Vice President Harris. And, you know, she's kind of like, you know, so, yeah, she's eight. but she will get it. You know, she definitely will get just the things that she gets to take for granted. So I'm so proud and I'm so excited and so pleased um, with the outcome of the election. That's awesome. So go buy the book, everybody. Motherhood So White. We're going to make it a New York Times bestseller. Yes, let's do that. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, friends. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Nefertiti, for sharing your story. Make sure you go check out her website, NefertitiAustin.com. You can find us on social media. We are Why Is Everyone Yelling on Instagram. We have a Facebook group as well. And check out our podcast network, Sandy Boy Productions on Instagram. We have three other shows in the Sandy Boy Network. All have another with Lindsay Hine, which is a running podcast. I interview runners over there. The Up and Running Podcast, which is a running podcast that brings you all of the latest news in elite and professional distance running. And then we have the Illuminate podcast where we are bringing you stories of people doing really cool work in this world. You can save 15% off at Prevenex for any of their multivitamins, supplements, protein powder, or their Supervites for kids when you go to Prevenex.com and use the code Lindsay15. That's Lindsay15. All right, friends, thanks for being here. If you do love the show, leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends so we can get the word out. Thanks so much. And we will see you next week on Why Is Everyone Yelling?